This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by David Hughes for what is quite an important week for Liverpool, mate. Yeah, huge, mate. Um, made even better by the, the the results in the Champions League, I think, getting that third goal, you know, the two-goal cushion. Kind of feels like um, Liverpool can go fully at it on Sunday where maybe City feel like they have to balance both fixtures a little bit more. Obviously, they've got a tough one over in Madrid, haven't they? They've only got a slender one-goal lead. So, um, yeah, I think it was a good start to the week for Liverpool and now it's, it's all about the big one at the Etihad. I am assuming that you're looking forward to it from a neutral perspective. Yeah, because you know what's really good about this this fixture uh, in this era, in the in the Klopp slash Guardiola era, is it never fails to disappoint. I think traditionally, you know, in, in the in the Premier League, you've had big fixtures that so often just don't really deliver. You know, they can be a little bit teams can be a bit shy. Uh, you can see the nerves out on the pitch, but this one just always seems to deliver, even if it's not a goal fest. You know, just being, I'm trying to think of uh, like the the game last season at the Etihad finished one all, just a really intense game, even though it didn't have a ton of goals in it. Um, so I'm expecting that even if this isn't a goal fest, I think it'll be a really interesting game, which you know settled by these smalls the margins, and it'll be a good one to watch. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, this week's show, we had the option of going on a few different routes, really. Obviously, we just played Benfica. Um, we didn't really get a chance to speak about that beforehand because of how the games worked out. Liverpool have won that game 3-1, fairly routine, I thought. Um, so, this week, what we're going to do is we're going to start off talking about what everyone cares about most, and that is obviously Sunday's title decided in many people's eyes. So, that's first on the agenda, and then I think Considering the amount of questions we got in for last week's Q&A, that's how we're going to do the second half of the show, really. We can't skip that many questions. Still have a fair few left. So if we didn't get to yours last week, hopefully we will this week. Uh, but it still feels like a long shot, to be honest. Um, but first up, mate, anyway, Manchester City. Now, I mean, where to start? I mean, this is is this the, the decider for you or is there more to it? Well... Um, in short, yes. <laughs> Just because I was going to say, you know, you look at the fixtures, specifically we talk about the Premier League for a minute, and you think, you know, Liverpool have got United at home, Everton at home, um, Newcastle away, Tottenham at home. I mean, they, that's a tough run of fixtures on paper. Um, but the form Liverpool are in and the form City are, are, are in, it's it, it's very much like it was two years ago where no matter who they're coming up against, they're just going to be too strong. You know, you can't see... I mean, you look at United and Everton and you think, you know, from an, an emotional perspective, you know, they're big games. But if you were to strip all that away and just look at it 11 v 11, you know, should beat United, should definitely beat Everton. Uh, and it's the same for Newcastle. You know, Newcastle had a little bit of a bounce, but should go there and win. Um, Tottenham are doing well, but again, you fancy Liverpool. And I don't know if you've got City's fixtures in front of you now. If not, I'll, I'll bring them up. But um, I imagine it'd be a similar story for them. So for me, then given how tight it is and how dominant they are against other sides, this is it. This is more than likely 
going to have a, a huge say on who wins the Premier League this season? I actually think it's the decider if City win. But I think if Liverpool win, I don't think it is. Um, and if obviously there's a draw, I don't think it is. Because um, if, if people don't really realise, people haven't really talked about it, that if City win, they have to go four points clear. Mm. Um, that's that's big enough to win the, the league, really, um, with eight games left. I mean, there'll be seven games left after this. And you've just touched on the fact that City have, in, in, in our opinion, a slightly easier running. Yeah, I'm just actually looking at it now, and it does, you know, not to <clears throat> not to make any Liverpool fans fearful, but it does look a lot easier on paper, doesn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. You got Wolves, Brighton, Watford, Leeds <clears throat> in the next four. Um, yeah, yeah, it looks a little bit easier. Yeah, I mean, I think if Liverpool win the game, obviously they go, they will go two points clear, uh, which is still it's still capable of swinging in one game. So I don't think it's over if Liverpool win the if Liverpool win the match, but I think if City win the game, I don't think it's over, but it's not far off. Um one thing Liverpool do have in their favour is goal difference. So Liverpool are currently well, five goals better off. So I suppose you could do the age old comments and say that that's a uh, that's where the point in itself, maybe. So maybe if Liverpool will win the game, maybe you could say that the the three points ahead of City rather than two considering the goal difference, but it's difficult. It's fun. Yeah, I was, I was going to say the the problem is I think if the goal you said the goal difference was positive <laughs> for Liverpool, didn't you? Yeah, I, I think that could be chipped away if it was you know say fifteen for example. Then that's your that's your point, isn't it? But if points are dropped, the chances are that goal uh, difference is going to swing as well. So uh, I, I did think it, it was interesting though that um, Guardiola last week. I'm sure you would have seen the quote. I'll bring it up because. Uh, yeah, he said um, we had two or three chances to to score and kill the game and get more for our goal difference against Liverpool. And I thought mm, it's quite interesting and revealing there that he's he's clearly yeah. uh, he's looking at the same and he's a little bit fearful that it could play into play the size of role come the end of the season. Yeah, I've always wondered actually whether that plays a part. I remember Liverpool a few years back under Rodgers, we went to Palace away the infamous Istanbul game. And uh, I, I'm almost certain Liverpool were going for a daft goal difference there because we, we, we were 3-0 up and yeah. still still playing like we had a two-goal deficit or something like that. Mm-hmm. So um, maybe it does play more of a part than we than we give it credit. But I, I, I would expect, considering that Liverpool already have a five-goal advantage over City, I do think that by the end of the season, Liverpool will have the better goal difference. Liverpool's defence, in particularly Alisson, and Van Dijk do look on form at the minute. Liverpool aren't conceding very many. When we conceded last night against Benfica, it just felt weird. <laughs> it yeah. felt weird conceding the goal uh, through a mistake, especially. And then in terms of the goals for column of the table, Liverpool are seven goals better off than City at the moment. Hmm. Um, and half of that season has been spent, well, more than half really, of that season has been spent without Luis Diaz, who's now available as an option for Liverpool up front. So, Jota-esque impact, hasn't he, really? Yeah, I mean it's been it's been brilliant. He was great again last night. Speaking of Diaz, though, I mean I'll use that as a segue. What's your team for this? Mm, good question. Um, Go from back to front. <laughs> okay. Um, obviously, Alison. Um, I, uh, yeah, same. Yeah, uh, right back picks itself, uh, doesn't it? Um, yeah. 
left back picks itself as well. I, I do. I would go with Robertson, even though I think Tomiskas has, has done well when he's coming. Tomiskas. <laughs> why change it now? You know what I mean. Did you do that one on purpose then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're not going to change it now, are we? <laughs> um, Van Dijk, and then I, I will say this: this second centre back is a little bit interesting. Um, I'm, I'm still not 100 percent sure where to go on that one. Um, I think it's interesting that last night Massa was benched, mm. and although Kanata played. I think he generally did do well, but mm. if you look at the goal, it was a massive error. You know, get the ball run, he can't get his feet sorted out. The ball runs through his legs, mm. and if that's it against against City, it's it's gonna get punished, isn't it? So, I think just for the sake of experience, the opponent's reliability form throughout the season, mm. I would slightly lean towards massive. And I don't, I don't think as, as well one 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 area in which Canazzi's been really valuable this season is one v one. We played them again. We played them at Old Trafford. I feel like that was specifically because United's left-sided threat with Rashford and players like that is always problematic for Liverpool. Can I say helps with that? But I feel like against City, there's almost less of a one v one threat maybe on that side. I mean, I suppose you could say if Sterling plays, maybe you definitely got that threat there. But I think in comparison to usual, I do think Matip is is probably who I'd go with personally. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's been he's been great this season, and you you've already touched on what I was about to say. I think it was pretty telling that uh, Matip started on the bench in the Champions League game because it's it would have been extremely unlikely that um, whoever was going to play on Sunday played as well uh, this week. It just wouldn't have made made much sense. Uh, I know it happens with say, you know, Van Dijk, but that's that's a little bit different, isn't it? Uh, because of who he is. Uh, I think one thing that could be interesting is, and maybe we'll talk on it a little bit more, but, you know, team selection and team formation, uh, and we will carry on with our team now, but I just want to flag it now on the subject of matter. Have you noticed there's been little variations, hasn't it, in this fixture in recent times? You know, we think of the Etihad uh, fixture last season. Liverpool go to a 4-4-2. Yeah, well, I was uh, going to touch on that. I think that's massive. I actually think yeah. that's... I think that offers an insight into a potential possibility this time around. Yeah, well, we'll come, we'll we'll, we'll have a proper chat about it in a minute. But all I was going to say was, if you didn't, um, and you and, and both teams lined up in the four three three that they played this season, you know, theoretically on paper, um, that's that's kind of uh, cancel each other out, isn't it? You know, it's it's even matchups all over the pitch, and I then yeah. think we, that's where maybe matter could become quite useful in his ability to step out and yeah. drive through the pitch, maybe pull players in and then create a few more openings. Um so that could be one small thing that might that might uh tip it in his favour should Liverpool go four three three and City do the same. But as we'll touch on in a little bit, we we don't necessarily know if that's going to be the case. Yeah. Uh, Liverpool obviously will be pressed as well in this game and not very few opponents actually up to press Liverpool in their own defensive third. Um, but I think in this game, Liverpool can expect to be pressed and I think in this game, any player who's who's not kind of totally comfortable on the ball is going to stick out like a sore thumb. And I think one thing Matip has certainly got attached to his game is that composure and that ability to play football from, from the centre of defence. Uh, not that Canate can't. I think Canate has been actually a lot better than I thought he was going to be when it comes to that this season. Mm. But Matip just has that that element of coolness and, as I said, that bit more experience of playing in this fixture. Yeah, I agree. 
Um, uh, number six picks itself, yeah? Yeah. Fabinho. Uh, midfield, I, I would go, but I'll throw it over to you. I would go Thiago and Henderson. Uh, yeah, I would as well. Yeah. Um, although I, did, I do think Kate played brilliant last night. I thought he was one of his better games and I thought he was great. But I think in this game, Thiago is an absolute given for me. Absolutely plays. I'm desperate to see him play in this game, to be honest. Um, you, you should have seen me when, uh, <laughs> when he got injured in the warm-up in the final. <sighs> I was I was under the couch, mate. I was finished. Um, <laughs> but I, I just want to see him play in this big game because I think the past few big games Liverpool have had, <clears throat> Chelsea away, Chelsea at Wembley in the final, Um I'm not sure that Thiago was available for City in the first game of the season at Anfield, but it feels like he went. I don't think he was. Um, but I want him to play, basically. I think his Liverpool's record when he's on the pitch is brilliant. And in this game in particular, it's going to come down to that individual ability of certain players. And Thiago just has that ability to just make such valuable passes. And considering City might be open in certain moments, if Thiago can feed Liverpool's front three, that could be very decisive, that on the break. Mm. Um and I think Henderson he speaks for himself. I think he's, you know, he's got plenty of experience in this in this game. Uh, very reliable on the defensive side of the game, which is important, especially against City. And he obviously got a rest as well against Benfica. Mm, yeah, he did. Which, again, if you read in between the lines, <coughs> that that probably hints, doesn't it, what's happening? The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The attack, well, I think, Josh. I, was say, I think I think the big one is the attack. Yeah, this is a headache. Um, yeah, Salah's obvious. Okay, so we'll we'll put we'll put Salah in. Uh, then I'm I'm a little bit. It's stuck. tough, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually don't have an answer to this for what it's worth. I haven't actually come up with a predetermined answer for this, so we're going to answer this live on the show. <laughs> what I would uh, say is maybe I. Could be tempted to um, go with the traditional front, front three, make a case for that with Firmino and Mane, knowing what you've got on the bench in terms of Jota, who has a great record of scoring important goals, uh, and Diaz, who looks you know on fire and could be a really good impact substitution. Um, I would maybe lean towards that, but I could make a case for the other way as well. Yeah, my, one thing I th- I think I would do. I think I would bench Diaz. Um, and a lot of people listen might be a bit surprised about that. But I think in this game in particular, I know Diaz has looked like he's played for Liverpool for about four years of, of late and he's slotted into the system perfectly and everything like that. But the, the, the bottom line is, though, at the same time, he has not been at Liverpool for four years. He's been at Liverpool for three months. Um, so although he's looking like a natural... He is st- still learning the details of the system. He doesn't yet speak the language. Um, so when it comes to communicating with Klopp, um, that kind of maybe isn't fully there yet. And I think specifically against this opponent, you have to be so good defensively. In, not, not just in terms of your work rate and stuff, but in terms of your positioning and your awareness of the system, where to be in certain moments. And I think considering the City... And Liverpool will probably attempt to press them high in certain moments. 
I think it would be a risk to play Diaz purely because of the defensive side of the game. Whereas I think Mane, for example, has obviously played within the confines of this system for about five years or so. Played against City on a number of occasions, knows exactly what you have to do and what you have to prevent them from doing and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think Diaz is a bigger threat at the moment in attack. I think from the off, I would use him from the bench as an impact uh, and I think he'd have a great impact as well when he comes on. But from the off, I think I would leave him on the bench just for those reasons. You reckon that's what you think? Yeah, yeah. Again, be, I, I can't really add much more so because I agree. I think the uh, the impact point is key. You know, I think he's a really, really good option to have coming off the bench. Um, and yeah, I, I, that's why I said I, I go with the traditional front, uh, front three. A bit of a tongue twister there. Um, I just feel like they they know the system uh, a lot better. Uh, I think Firmino could be key in this game. You know, he's he's shown a few times this this season when he's come back in what he can offer, uh, and maybe what Liverpool have missed at times. Even though Jota has been really good with his goals, um, I actually think Diaz could be more uh, of a goal threat than than Mane on current form. Uh, but I just think everything else that goes with it in this fixture of all fixtures means that I'd be more inclined to go with that three, knowing that you could change you could change it uh, if you were looking to chase a goal um, or if you're just looking to add a little bit more threat later in the match. Yeah, I think the the big one for me is whether you play Jota or not. Um, I think I, I, I am on your side when it comes to the traditional front three. My only question is just whether I would maybe use Jota to, to disrupt that a little bit. And the, the only reasons of why I would potentially do that is I think he's more of a threat on the break than Firmino is, simply because of his speed, really. And his, mm. I think he's a bit more clinical than Firmino. He's a bit more of a poacher um, than Firmino and Mane. I think he's he is inclined to nick a goal, even when he's playing badly. Um, and if you looked, I haven't looked for for a while now, but his defensive numbers when I last checked, I think he generally presses more than than Mane, and I think he generally wins the ball, regains you know high up the field more than Mane. Um, so I think there is there is a case for Johnson. I think in this, although there's the usual front three having bags of experience in this game. Um, I think Jota is is obviously a bit more of a threat than Bobby, and <clears throat> in terms of scoring, and I think he maybe offers a, a, a fair bit on the defensive side in comparison to Mane. Certainly based on the numbers, but not, I do think Mane is still a very good defensive player. So maybe I can flip a coin with that. But that's where I'm struggling. So you're just thinking Jota either through the middle or on the left? Yeah, well, I would I would obviously go Salah on the right, and then. I don't know what I would do next. I, I I don't know if I'd if I'd go. Obviously, if Firmino, Firmino plays, Jota would have to play on the left, which is what Liverpool did against Manchester United at Old Trafford. Um, left Mane on the bench, but if 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 Mane plays in my in my opinion, Mane plays on the left and Jota plays through the middle. So I suppose some of it will depend on what you want the Manchester City centre backs to. To have to deal with Jordan, to have to deal with Jota, who's maybe going to threaten them behind a little bit, or Jordan to deal with Firmino, who's going to drag them out of position. You know what's what you go with there. It's, it's a difficult one. 
I think I'd be I'd I'd, I'd be inclined more to go with Firmino with there. You know, I think uh, <clears throat> I think it just makes life a little bit more difficult for the central defenders in knowing how far they drop in, and also you're dealing with basically a lone kind of pivot, aren't you? With Rodri, he's expected to do all that work. I just think it make, it makes it uh, his job a little bit harder. Um, but then look, you make a case for the other way. You could say, well, City play a high line, hit them on the transition, and you've got that threat in behind with 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 Jota, haven't you? So, um, and I, I guess you could make a case for both. And it's kind of they say it's a nice headache to have, uh, but still a headache at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, in Jota's case, he he's the I said recently on this podcast, he's top of the Premier League for goals per ninety and mm. expect goals per ninety. And he's a he's a natural when it comes to counter attacking, and Liverpool are naturally going to have to be be in transition a bit more against this team. So I do think he is a natural fit, but at the same time, Bobby is is he performed very very well against City over the years, and he's Liverpool's most defensively active forward by a, by a mile. Um, it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what he does. But I suppose this then leads us on to whether. You potentially find a way of playing for them um, by switching things up. Four two three one potentially is is a system Liverpool have used on occasion this season. But usually when we are chasing a goal or we're against their weak opponents, and obviously last season Klopp surprised us all by using four four two. Yeah, that was that was that was a very uh, a very big surprise and. I think it worked really well because for though certainly the first twenty minutes, the pool were were hugely on top. Uh, they scored as well in that time, if I remember correctly. Um, and we talked about it afterwards, saying it was really good because I don't think Guardiola would have expected it. I think there was a period of adjustment required for the City players as they tried to work out what was going on, who should be picking up who, and. Within that time, you know, Liverpool ideally would have liked to got a couple more goals, and I think the game's done, isn't it? You know, Liverpool go two 0 up. They got a goal, but they were pegged back, and then uh, the game kind. Of, it felt like City kind of grew into the game once they adjusted a little bit. But it does make you think: will will uh, will they adjust it again? Because I think, given how well these teams know each other, it it could be a successful tactic. You know, even if you think this season, Guardiola done that in the second half. He adjusted things, didn't he, at Anfield? I think it was uh, both sides went up with that fourth three-three. I think he was probably content to do that because going to Anfield, you know, it probably pr- would prefer to teams to stylistically maybe cancel each other. I was a little bit keep the game tight and then maybe maybe nick something, but. Think he needed to get a goal. Maybe he'd gone two one behind, and he he then switched to that four two three one that he used for much of this season. Uh, last season, sorry, they did be played a lot of four two three one last season. Obviously, they've gone back to four three three this season. Uh, but switched to four two three one. They got an equaliser and they had a good spell in the game. So it wouldn't surprise me. I I don't expect Guardiola and City to change their formation uh, with them being the home side. Uh, but I wouldn't be shocked if Liverpool tried something new. See, this is this is why I think it's interesting though, because over over time Guardiola kept playing Liverpool. I didn't, he did, he wasn't getting too much success, um, and he stumbled across four two three one, and he started then 
getting a bit of joy, particularly when it comes to building out, out and, and through Liverpool's press. Um, and he was, he, I think he used four, two, three, one, something like three matches in a row against Liverpool. And that was then when Klopp used four, four, two. And I think the reason he used four, four, two was because Guardiola's four, two, three, one was starting to deliver a little bit against them. Um, and for, for those who can't remember, Liverpool used a front two of Salah and Firmino. And Salah and Firmino basically attached themselves to Rodri and Gundogan in the middle of the park. And Liverpool's two wide players were Jota and Mane. And they, they essentially tucked inside defensively to, to block access to the half spaces for City. Um, I really liked that. I thought it was very, very clever. Um, but it was done because of the 4 2 one that Guardiola was using, I thought. Um, and obviously, you've just touched on this season, according to, according to Y-Scout, City have used 4-3-3 79% of the time this season in the Premier League and Champions League. 4 2 3 1 has been used about 8% of the time. So, considering that, it's going to be interesting to see if Guardiola does stick with what he's been using for most of the season, which is 4 3 3, or if he's going to use 4 2 3 1, which seems to be his go to shape specifically when he's facing Liverpool. Um, I'll, I'll just have a check now what he used earlier in the season against Liverpool in terms of formation. I'm not sure if you can yeah. remember, mate. Yeah, it was a, it was it was a four three three initially, and then I think he reverted to the four. Oh, you just said that, then, didn't you? And a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah, well, that's that's going to be interesting. Then, obviously, if Klopp does go with a four four two or a four two three one or whatever, um, it does open up the possibility of fielding four of his forwards. But then, if he did do that, one of Henderson, Fabinho, or Thiago is going to be on the bench, hmm. and I, I can't see it. I really can't see it. No, no, no. I um, I can't see that either. You know, I. I'm I, to I think, think any way you can get around it, but unless think, I think considering he's got his best eleven, he's got his best his full squad available. I mm. think he will just play four three three and play his best team. I think that's what he's going to do. Um, but obviously, there's the possibility there in the second half, maybe of, of switching things up to a four four two or whatever. If Guardiola does the same change as he did early in the season at Anfield when he he moves to four two three one. Yeah, what I expect is if that happens, both go four three three. I expect the first goal to be crucial uh, in terms of the the outcome of the match, and I then expect whoever goes behind to make a reactive change very quickly. So I so what I'm thinking is, you know, City will be looking out for a point of view thinking, uh, if we score first, uh, we have a good, we have a good chance to kind of to hold on to this now. Same thing with Liverpool. I expect the other team to fall behind to be like, we need to do a reactive change quickly. We need to change so it's not even, you know, 1v1s all over the pitch theoretically. Um and need to do something where we can try and create some sort of overload. So then that's where I think you could maybe see the team who go behind then go into like a 4-2-3-1. Yeah, well, the, sc- the scoring first thing is is interesting in this one, actually, because if you look at City's record this season, I think City's approach has been totally all about uh, patience and control. I think they've scored a lot of goals in the second half, and it's just been about 
restricting the opposition to virtually nothing and being very patient and eventually getting the breakthrough. But when other teams have scored first, City's record in the Premier League this season, um, when conceding first, one win, two draws, three losses. Um, so it's not the best record when it comes to conceding first. And if you consider that they would concede first against Liverpool, you would you wouldn't expect them to to pick up a win based on based on those figures because some of those games are against like um, Spurs and, and teams like that. One as goes Liverpool, so uh, it's going to be an insistent one. Um, what, um, what's Liverpool's record like? It's taking the lead. I bet, I bet it's pretty solid. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> they've they've won twenty, drew three, lost none. Well, one thing I was going to flag the other day, I was going to tweet it. If you look at this season, time spent leading and time spent level and time spent trailing. Uh, Liverpool have spent the most time in the in the lead than of any other team. And on average, if we do if we do a pay match, um, Liverpool tends to be in the lead, tend to lead for fifty three percent of the time. Uh, City fifty percent. Of the time, and when it comes to tra- trailing, especially Liverpool, I've only been trailing for six point three percent of the season. Mm. City have trailed for ten point three percent of the season, um, but it's interesting that despite that, City have a one point lead at the top of the table. Mm. Uh, so it's it's interesting now it all comes down to just accumulating points at the end of the day. Just uh, one more thing to add before we do move on. I just had a quick look, and uh, City's record when they do take the lead is uh, scored twenty, scored first on twenty-two occasions and won every single game when they have. Yeah. So, big first goal is going to be key, man. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, it always is, isn't it? But I think yeah. in, this, in this match in particular, it's it's going to mm-hmm. put the it's going to really change the game state, isn't it? It's going to really mm-hmm. change the tactical approach of both teams. Liverpool will probably go to a four in attack. Um, City will probably start to show pressure, which is unlike them. Mm. Uh, Liverpool will start to dominate possession against the Guardiola team. So, I mean, we've probably missed loads, but we've, we've previewed a fair bit. They were took half an hour of the show on that. Um, mm. And we've got questions to get through. So, I think we will leave it there. I'm not sure I'm going to test the water with predictions. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I actually think it'll be a draw, you know. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, the thing is, it's a weird game where either team could easily win as well. It's you know, there's just nothing between them really in terms of quality. Well, a point, which is probably fair. So, yeah, yeah. maybe a draw. Um, what? Just just before we do move on, how would you feel about a draw? Would you be like mm, okay, or would you think ah, that's that's a big opportunity gone? I feel like a lot of that would depend on how the match goes, um, but I do feel like. If you're the chasing team and you get the opportunity to face the, the one team that's ahead of you, you you kind of have to beat them really because you you can't then expect or ask other teams to pick up points off that team if you can't yourself. If you know what I mean. Mm. So for me, I think if you look back at 2018-19, I think it was when Liverpool lost the league by a point. I don't think we beat City home or away. Um, in fact, I think we might have. I think we might have uh, lost at the Etihad and drew a home, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I think that was the game Mahrez missed that pen at Anfield, so yeah. City could have won that one as well. So, and that that cost us the league. So, in my opinion, Liverpool should be going for a win here. 
but I think the big one from a Liverpool perspective was boring as it is. Liverpool just can't lose this. Because if Liverpool lose this, you go four points behind City with seven games to go and you have a tougher run. So mm-hmm. as long as Liverpool don't lose, I suppose it's not the end of the world, but you have to win, in my opinion, as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get it. Yeah, I agree. So we'll leave we'll leave that one there anyway. Hopefully we'll speak about that one next week in, in terms of uh, Liverpool going for the title. You know, it's going to be an interesting one to watch. But for the next part of the show, until the end, we are going to address the questions that we didn't get to last week. So Dave, I'll let you continue where you left off. I'll let you go first. Yeah, okay. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Hey, mate. I, uh, <clears throat> so... I'll do my best with these because, um, as you can imagine, we've uh, we've had less time to prepare getting through them. But the first one is uh, off Tom Stewart, friend of the show. He says, uh, "All right, fellas, if Klopp leaves when he says he is, what do you pre- predict our starting eleven will look like at that stage?" Um, I mean, we're looking at the end of twenty twenty four, if if I'm right, aren't we? Uh, that's when his contract's due to yeah. expire. Um, so we're two years away from that. Obviously, it's really difficult to answer that thoroughly because there's, there's transfer windows between now and then. But maybe some key pillars. Uh, if we if we run through the team, Josh, and just feel free to jump in any time on this. Um, Allison will be uh, thirty-one. I imagine based on what he's doing now, he, he's still in the starting eleven. Would you agree? Say that again. Sorry. Allison would would still be in the start yeah. eleven. You think in twenty? He'd be thirty one at that stage. Yeah, comfortably for me. Yeah, yeah, fine. Um, right back, you know, unbelievably, Trent would only be twenty five. So yeah, he'll still be there. Um, Kanata, you imagine, will still be in the team. Maybe alongside him, there might be someone else. Because um, obviously, not for me. Out. Not for you. You, you, so you still Van Dijk in? Uh, I, I still think Virgil will be there. Yeah, I said last know. week. I said last week. I think his his longevity is going to get underrated. I think he's going to still be playing at a high level, like Thiago Silva, when he's like thirty five. I suppose the way his game is, you know, he's he'd only be thirty two at the time. Um, okay, he's a late bloomer oh, as well. Okay. Late bloomer. Yeah. Okay. We'll we'll leave him in. Uh, left back. I don't know. Listen, uh, Robertson would be 30. Uh, I'm going to put a grey area over that one. Mm, I'm not too sure where I stand on that one. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on it, Josh. Uh, it'd be interesting to see when his, when his contact expires, but I have a mm. feeling he'd still be there, I think, Robertson. Mm, maybe, It's actually yeah. putting into perspective this, that how, how little things would change, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But then, I'd, I'd say midfield gets a bit different, doesn't it? Being over yeah. 28, he'd be 30. Maybe he's still around. I don't expect Henderson to still be in the team. And well, I'd be surprised. I'd still expect him to maybe be around. I don't know. But uh, again, I need to know what the contracts are. Thiago, I think Thiago will be done by then. I know you love him, Josh, so I don't want to break your heart. <laughs> in two years' time, I think he'll be done by then. Um, so midfield, I think we'll, there'll be a few new faces. Uh, which we'd expect anyway, wouldn't we? And then forwards is a good one, isn't it? Because you've got Diaz, Jota, both 25 now. They'd be 27, still heavily involved. Harvey Elliott, he could, you pull him in midfield or attack, really. Um, so he's a good one to have. He'd just be 21. You know, what a, what a kind of prospect that is. Um, 
but then Mane, you think Mane probably won't be, uh, you know, his, his contract will expire by then for me, you know, he'll probably be gone as well. And we expect Salah to be gone. So, yeah, just, I think there's I, there's going to be a few key pillars still in the side, but there's also going to be a fair bit of change, I'd say, over the next two years. Yeah, I agree, mate. Um, I think it's going to be interesting, but I, I do think a lot of the, the players are going to be there then. We are seeing them now. I don't think it'll be that different. I think that's that's the beauty of of proper squad plan. Uh, when you get it right, you can have these pillars and play for a while. Look at Real Madrid, for example. Still got a lot of the players there who, who won the Champions League three times in a row for them. So, uh, I've got a question from Greg Hughes. He asks, he says, a mate of mine, a huge Reds fan, is studying a master's degree in maths and will take this year's mathematical modelling of football course. She's smart. Once she graduates, how could she get a job in football analysis, preferably for Liverpool? Interesting question. Um, I think, for me, from what I understand, the bottom line is it's a difficult industry to get into. One of the ways in which you can do it is by uh, producing public content, basically. Uh, that's what me and Dave did. and That's what a lot of people we know did who now work for football clubs um they produce public work get themselves out there demonstrate that they can do certain things and on the back of that they get hired but i think if there's one thing i've picked up on it's that qualifications are only i mean i'm not even sure up to 50 percent of the battle um qualification i suppose is nice to have behind you but when it comes to getting into an industry i think a lot of the time you have to kind of demonstrate that you can do it almost for free as I said, put your work out there publicly and hope you get noticed. Um, that's what happened to me. I was lucky enough for that to be the case. And uh, I don't work for a club. I only work for <laughs> for Reach PLC. So, um, yeah, it's but good luck. All you know, all the best with that. Yeah, good luck. Um, Real McKenzie. Um, <clears throat> I would have said Raul, but I mean, they put a nice little spell next to it, which I appreciate it. Must know that. Uh, <laughs> must, must know my. Tamiskas, uh, <laughs> I think since guys did me a favour. Uh, this current Liverpool team is arguably the greatest team uh, we've ever produced. Fair comments. How much longer do you realistically uh, think we can remain as one of the best teams in the world? And do you think a lot of it hinges on Klopp being at the helm? Um, I think Liverpool have done a lot of really good work uh, beyond uh, pitch level. You know. You'll have to look at the recruitment. I think the club's really well aligned. I think um, in the business of money, if you compare them to other teams in the division, you know they've they've been really well run. I know there's criticism of uh, FSG spending. I get it. I see the frustration. But if you look at how sustainable the club are, you know they are one of the very best at that. Um, and on that basis, I think that can help keep Liverpool competitive to a degree. But you know, it, it, I think it's always really hard when you lose a manager like uh, who's had the impact that Klopp has had at Liverpool. You know, it's been he's had a transformational impact on the club. Really, if you think of what they were when he come in to what they are now and what they've been over these past few years, the honest answer is um, I think the uh, the structure will be good enough for a new manager to come in and try and continue his work, but. I don't think you know if he's if they're going to be able to do so until it actually happens because it's such a big job and it's going to be a daunting task for for someone uh, in a few years' time for sure. 
Yeah, so James P has been in touch. He asks, uh, we've been talking about the data analytics, about data analytics being used in professional football for a while. Are you aware of any international teams that are heavily implementing the approach? Uh, I suppose it depends what you mean by heavily implementing, because I think I think a lot of international teams will, will naturally use data in their analysis and you know player recruitment when it comes to the national pools and things like that. Um, but when it comes to having a specific impact on playing style and tactical details, like is it Liverpool? I'd probably be a little bit surprised if that was the case at an international level. I do think. Um, International teams kind of recruit on, on an international level players using the numbers. Though, like I think Roberto Martinez for Belgium, I think I've seen clips of him analysing Belgium players based on based on stats and things like that. And if he, if he wants like a, a player who's a dribbler type thing, he'll he'll use the numbers to tell him which Belgian players are of the, of that nature essentially. Um, so I do think it's. It's getting used across football without a doubt. Um, but in terms of analytics shaping an international team properly, like it has shaped Liverpool, uh, I doubt it. To be honest, I, I, not 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 to Liverpool's level at least, but I do think it's 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 going on. Mm. Yeah, now, I'm trying to think if I've seen any similar examples myself, but. Uh... I don't think I have. I don't think I've ever read anything particular. I suppose it's different. There obviously will be analysis in place, you know, on a kind of team level, but yeah. uh, that deeper side, I don't know if it's more club specific. You know, maybe if someone's read anything interesting, they can they can flag it to us. Um, this will be a short answer, Paddy. Paddy F, can you think of any reasoning or justification or argument why Liverpool Sam? Balotelli in 2014 and Benteke in 2015 from an analytical point of view. Uh, these players seem to embody the opposite of what Rodgers wanted from his team. Uh, and given these signings occurred only three or four years before players perfectly attuned to Klopp's vision like Mane and Salah were signed, what does this say about how Liverpool's transfer policy evolved so quickly? You know, I, I guess that kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, about what makes Liverpool so good beyond what's happening on the pitch. Uh, you know, they, are, they, they have kind of evolved to this market-leading uh, side in this area. To answer your questions about, you know, Balotelli, uh, I, I have no idea. It, I'd love to come with a witty answer or a good answer as to, as to why they, those players were signed. But I think the reality was the uh, Liverpool were a different, different proposition then. Uh, you know, these players look like they maybe had talent and uh, maybe this is a common mistake. Maybe Liverpool thought, you know, they'd be the right environment to get the very best out of these talents. Um, you know, they could work with the personalities. You know, obviously Rogers was known as a, a good man manager. So maybe all this played a part in that they felt like they could unlock uh, the very best of these players that others hadn't been able to do so. Uh but yeah, the uh the reality was it was it was bad moves and it's not the type of moves you'd see Liverpool do today. Hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I've got kind of like a, a combined question here because two two people have asked similar. Uh, so from Rum Garcia and from hang on a sec, uh, Will Miller as well. I think it's Will Miller. 
Yeah. He says, it's basically talking about Salah and whether Liverpool will actually sign a like-for-like replacement for him. Um, they both kind of touch on the fact that Liverpool could potentially replace Salah with a midfielder instead and maybe shift the system or, or whatever, um, change, the, change the formation and things like that. But I can see the points, uh, but I, I personally don't think it will happen. I think for years we've been toying with the prospect of Klopp finally shifting towards a 4-2-3-1 or whatever on a permanent basis. But the more I think about it, the more I think that it's just not going to happen. And one of the reasons I don't think it's it's going to happen is because I think it massively helps when it comes to recruitment if the recruiters know exactly what kind of player they're looking for and the details of the system and what the player has to offer in that system. I think when we went and when we went to the Statsbond conference, Dave and, and Ian Graham gave that talk. I think one of the points that he used to um to capture one of the reasons maybe why a transfer will fail. I think he listed something like six. One of them I think was basically a player being used out of position or a player being a player that was system changing or, or whatever. Um whereas I think when Liverpool, one of the reasons Liverpool have kept four three three consistently for years and years is to help with recruitment. I think you know what yeah you know what you're buying. Um and I think if you look at some of the top recruiters out there that's generally the case. City have kept 4-3-3 for a few years and generally have recruited well. Brighton have recruited well. They have played with a back three for a few years now. Antonio Conte tends to recruit fairly well. He has used a 3-4-3, 3-5-2 system variations of the two over the years consistently. So usually, and if you look at a manager who maybe doesn't recruit particularly well, Brendan Rodgers changes his system every week because he likes to be a, a tactical you know, innovator, tactical genius and stuff like that, but it doesn't help when it comes to recruitment. So I think Liverpool will stick with 4-3-3 and I think we'll replace Salah with the next in line who is a wide forward who is inclined to score and assist and who is left-footed. Yeah. But there's, look, there's quite a few uh, questions that come in on Salah that we addressed last week and still got a few more here. Uh, please don't be offended if, if yours hasn't been read out, but... Uh, there's just a lot of the same stuff about them. Uh, I just don't want to maybe overdo for other listeners who are maybe, you know, a bit fatigued on the subject. So, you know, apologies uh, on my part if, if I choose to just skip over the Salah one, but it is hopefully for the good of the episode. Um, Gordon Johnston asked, uh, I wonder if players really do feel pressure uh, in between games and how do they individually cope with pressure? Or the sports psychologist at Anfield. I mean, that's. I think that's a definitely a yes. I guess to an extent, you get uh, more accustomed to the to playing in such fixtures. Uh, but one hundred percent, they'll still feel pressure. You know, it's important to remember that as recently as this summer, Liverpool were working with Nuro Eleven, who were. Well, I think they label themselves as you know database training for elite athletes. Um, I've actually spoken to Dr. Nicholas Horsler, who, who reached out to me uh, on Twitter. I think he follows you as well, Josh, um, who's heavily involved with stuff at Liverpool. You know, he seemed really receptive. Maybe it might be good in the future, at the end of the season. We might ask him if, he come, if he'd be willing to come on the show and he could talk a little bit more about working with Liverpool. Because uh, I think that would be quite good. But to answer your question, yeah, I think they, they definitely feel pressure 
Um, and that's why you have these these people coming in who can kind of help to cope with that and you know try and use it to to your advantage as well when when possible. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. So John Yeomans has been in touch on other regular listeners as far as I'm aware. Uh, he says, interesting question actually, he says, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this, Dave. Is, is it possible for a club or a player to game their statistics so that over a period of time, a player's metrics look good and increase their value, basically? Uh, for example, a player is always the one making forward passes or a player takes a free kicks or playing in the same position against weaker opposition. I think it's an incessant shout. I do think generally across the board, um, one of the ways in which you can do this is simply by giving player giving a player penalties. Um, I think, obviously, Arsenal paid a lot for Nicolas Pepe a few seasons ago, but a lot of people kind of ignored that, OK, he scored a fair amount of goals from a wide position, but he, I think something like, I think something like nine of his goals were penalties. Um, and that just looks great, doesn't it? If you're looking for players according to numbers and you're doing it in a bit of an amateur way and you see a player scored 20 goals from a wide position, but then you don't realise that nine of them are from, from the penalty spot. Um, you know, maybe that's a way of increasing the player's value and making them look a bit better. I don't think the forward passing option is a thing, uh, making a player just make more forward passes or whatever. I'm not sure that's a thing, but t- taking set pieces for me probably is, you know, a Bruno Fernandes is a player who really shines in the numbers in based on his numbers in Portugal. But in Portugal, he took all the corners, he took all the free kicks, took all the penalties. And generally, if you look at specifically numbers in terms of key passes and creating chances, a lot of the players who are high on the list are, are that high because they also they create headers from corners and they get a massive boost. I remember a few seasons ago with Liverpool when they were amateurs at this sort of thing, bought Charlie Adam, Stuart Downing and Jordan Henderson in the same window. And a lot of the reason behind the three of those pages was because they ranked high in chances created. They all took set pieces for the respective teams. Um, and it would be interesting to see if at the time Liverpool filtered that in. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's a... You can certainly boost passing numbers as well with excessive short passes rather than, you know, uh, those of a more progressive nature. So you can have a really high pass success rate, but, you know, for the kind of short five yards, they don't they don't really add much value to your possession then. You know, you'll see that there's not much in that. Uh, just on that thing as well, I, I, I car school to, to the team I'm with, I car school with a... Um, a player who's played the football league, um, got like 50-odd international caps, won't name him, but he has told me, Josh, uh, that uh, he, he was, he's was he been at a club uh, and the manager has been heavy, heavily reliant on, uh, unnamed manager has been heavily reliant on GPS stats. Um, and his opinion has been that if you run more than your, the opposition, you will win every time. Which... <laughs> okay. uh, we obviously know it's ridiculous. I've heard that one before, yeah. Yeah, we know it's ridiculous, but he said so the way there was players in the team who'd do a lot of excessive running basically to boost their numbers, even though there was no uh, correlation with actually good yeah. performances and, and, uh, and winning matches. So 
I do wonder, you know, maybe not the exact same, but I do wonder if that happens somewhere along the football pyramid where there's certain kind of boosting of uh, underlying numbers for for the cause beyond wanting to win football matches. There probably is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's insistent. It's one of the reasons which Liverpool can obviously generate a lot of insist in their players simply by playing Nico Williams, for example, in, in the Trent role. You do naturally get a lot of the opportunities to be an attacking fullback, and you look at it as an attacking fullback. Same as with Dick Origi as well, scoring mm-hmm. plenty of goals for Liverpool and things like that. So, I do think there's there's ways to do it, but whether it's a popular thing, I'm not I'm not sure really. Mm-hmm. Um, Craig Johnson, do you think Jota has what it takes to lead Portugal on the international stage in the same success that Ronaldo did? Uh, It'd be impressive if he could, but <laughs> you know what people. Forget, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what people forget is, I know he looks, he's looks a little bit uh, washed up, but maybe now, but you know, Ronaldo's a generational talent. You know, he's been one of the best players ever. I'm not taking anything away from Jota, but I just think. Uh, I think he can be an excellent player for Portugal, but I don't think he can have the same impact as Ronaldo because I, I, I think I can. I can't think of one Portuguese player who will. You know, Ronaldo uh, essentially put Portugal on his back, didn't he? You yeah, know, exactly, them, essentially. Yeah. So yeah, for, not for me, but he can still be a fantastic player for them. Yeah, so uh, I've got a question from Mark Weeks, uh, another regular contributor. I think he says. With an increasing number of top players running their contracts down, are we seeing the end of transfer fees? Or is this a cyclical phenomenon? Yeah, it's a good, another good question. Um, it is interesting to see how it's happening, but I think I think a lot of it, to be honest, is, is, is associated with the top clubs in particular not having very much money to use. Of the past, over the past few years, the likes of Real Madrid, Barcelona, and Juventus in particular have made a series of of bad moves in the transfer market and financially, and it's resulted in them uh, being a bit skint, <laughs> essentially. Uh, so on the back of that, the only way in which they've been able to been able to sign these players is by kind of convincing them to run the contract down and getting paid big in the uh, when when they eventually arrive. There's no way Real Madrid would be able to sign Kylian Mbappe, who, in previous years, from a from a club by the way that's essentially owned by a country, um, in previous years those are the players that Real Madrid would always always poach, and they'd always have the money to do it. But in the modern day, Real Madrid are no longer the the rich club. You know the the, the club with all the money, and the only way to get them, get them on board is by getting them on a free. Uh, so I think a lot of it stems from that. Whether they whether those clubs will come again uh, and eventually be able to afford these players again remains to be seen. I'm not really sure, but I wouldn't be that surprised to be honest if if player power continues to keep growing and players running down contracts and leaving for free and getting a big signing on fee is. I think it. I think it's here to stay. To be honest. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I probably agree. Actually. Um. Tony Mangan, uh, firstly says thank you for the wonderful podcasts. Big fan of Blood Red and the, and our show in particular, which is nice. Um, one seem to remember hearing uh, 
Simacast, what do I call them again? Oh, yeah, I'm just going to have to go back to normal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Simacast was signed. Uh, uh, seems to remember that when he was signed, he, he played at right back. Um, why has he never played there whilst Trent's been injured? Uh, and please explain in detail <laughs> uh, why he's not being considered there either. Tony, please excuse me, but I'm not going to go into too much detail. Uh, but I appreciate your nice message. Um, so, the, the truth is, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, the, the, the dynamics of playing the left compared to the right might seem basic, but reality is it, it, it's not that simple. Uh, I think it becomes quite quite complex. Uh, if he's played there before, then you know maybe he's more accustomed to it. But obviously, we're talking about doing it in a much... Uh, tougher environment, you know, the Premier League or Champions League. And not just that, you've got to remember how, how difficult that job is at Liverpool. Think of the other times, you know, we spoke about uh, Trent being called out for his defensive or inability to defend, I should say. You know, we uh, that's often inflated a little bit, but the issues he, he has is he's always defending in transition. That's really tough. You know, so you're asking you're asking him to do, go into a new position and do do the same. Really, I think that's hard. So maybe that's why it, that's being considered by by Klopp in the past, which is why he's put you know say like uh, a midfielder in there. It's, I think Milner's gone in there a couple of times, hasn't he, Josh? Yeah. Um, so maybe he does that. So I think these are all things that he weighs up and maybe just considers uh, uh, that it's not worth the gamble. But I'm not saying it'll never happen. It, it could happen in the future, especially if. Uh, Klopp has a bit more trust in him to play there. Yeah, so I think we're going to have to round up there, mate. Uh, as usual, we didn't get through anybody, uh, which is which is unfortunate. So apologies to people such as Robert Coulson, Stuart Dunn, Chris Wright, Richard Howard, Zifu the King, Victoria Young. Even got a question from Thor of Asgard. <laughs> so whether that's an actual person putting in a question I don't know uh, but it really insists in me nevertheless uh, apologies to all of those people you know and, and more you know, there's plenty yeah, more yeah there's two more of these as well on my uh, Tahir Iqbal and Ahmed uh, Gokal I think there's apologies to you as well yeah uh, SC that as well is, an, is another one but I think there's more I think there's well, we haven't got through, so apologies to, to everyone who's well, hasn't had the question answered, but we did our best. Um, Dave, thanks for joining us, mate. Thank you, mate. Hope you uh, enjoy the game Sunday. Yeah, we hope our listeners do, and hopefully Liverpool pick up a win, and we will speak about whatever happens next week. So do tune in then. Thanks for tuning in this week, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.